We will continue now our study through the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 10, verses, or Genesis chapter 11, verses 10 through 32. These are the records of the generations of Shem. Shem was 100 years old and became the father of Arphaxad two years after the flood. And Shem lived 500 years after he became the father of Arphaxad, and he had other sons and daughters. Arphaxad lived 35 years and became the father of Shelah. And Arphaxad lived 400 years, 403 years after he became the father of Shelah, and he had other sons and daughters. Shelah lived 30 years and became the father of Eber. And Shelah lived 403 years after he became the father of Eber. And he had other sons and daughters. Eber lived 40 or 34 years and became the father of Peleg. And Eber lived 430 years after he became the father of Peleg. And he had other sons and daughters. Peleg lived 30 years and he became the father of Ru. And Peleg lived 209 years after he became the father of Ru. And he had other sons and daughters. Ru lived 32 years and became the father of Serug. And Ru lived 207 years after he became the father of Sarug, and he had other sons and daughters. Sarug lived 30 years and became the father of Nehor. And Sarug lived 200 years after he became the father of Nehor and had other sons and daughters. Nehor lived 29 years and became the father of Terah. And Nehor lived 119 years after he became the father of Terah. And he had other sons and daughters. Terah lived 70 years and became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now, these are the generations of Terah. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran became the father of Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his birth, in Ur of the Chaldeans. Abram and Nahor took wives for themselves. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. And the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Ishkah. Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife. And they went out together from Ur of the Chaldeans in order to enter the land of Canaan. And they went as far as Haran and settled there. The, the days of Terah for 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we pray that you would please aid our ears, our minds, and soften our hearts this morning as we consider your word. We pray that in all things that you would be glorified and that we would be drawn closer to you. We ask all these things in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Brothers and sisters, we come once again to a genealogy. And for some, as we embark upon our fourth genealogy, if we're being technical, our fourth genealogy, there may be a temptation, even as we're reading, to mentally check out of this service. Uh, Many times when we come upon a a genealogy in our private devotions, we may be tempted to 
and often give in to the temptation to, to skip that portion of the scripture for something we may believe is more entertaining or maybe even more applicable. But my, I encourage you this morning to ask God to give you grace. Grace to engage your minds to understand why God has provided this portion of scripture for his people. And also ask yourselves this, when you are tempted to skip over seemingly insignificant portions of scripture, ask yourself, do I believe that all scripture is inspired by God? Do I believe that all of scripture is inspired by God and therefore profitable for God's people? If all of scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so that the men and women of God might be adequate and equipped for every good work, then this portion of Scripture, though it may be hard to uh, pronounce and though it may be long and though it may seem less applicable than we than it may appear, it is God's Word. Therefore, we must give it our full attention. So may God give you and I grace in the moments that that we come across portions of Scripture. Let us ask God to give us the grace to answer the question, is all Scripture inspired by God? And is all Scripture profitable for my instruction? Let us ask God to give us the grace to answer with a resounding, yes, it is. So then, since I pray that all of us affirm that this is the Word of God and that it is purposeful, then we must ask the question, what then is the purpose of this portion of Scripture? It is inspired by God. What then is the purpose of this portion? What does God intend to teach his people with this genealogy? In order to answer the question of what is the portion or purpose of this portion of Scripture, we must keep in mind the principle that we must carry with us as we study throughout all of God's word, and that is this, this principle, that what we are presently considering is not disconnected from all that we have previously learned. Did you hear that? What we are presently considering is not disconnected from all that we have previously learned. The passage before us today is not isolated from the passages that we have learned yesterday. That which we have learned yesterday informs us of what we are presently considering today. Amen. So then, what have we learned? Brothers and sisters, I have three points for our consideration this morning. Number one, where we have been. Where we have been. Uh, most often, the 10th and 11th chapters of the book of Genesis are skipped and we skip right to the 12th chapter of the book of Genesis because that is apparently where we can at least make the most sense out of things. We are at the doorstep, on the doorstep of Abraham, the great man of faith. The next 13 chapters of the book of Genesis will be dedicated to the life of Abraham. But we will not have a proper context, if you will, of the next 13 chapters without first understanding how we have gotten to here or there, the, the doorstep of the 12th chapter. Yahweh, the creator and sustainer of heaven and earth, has made all things. God made man upright. There was no sin that corrupted man who was made in the image of God. God made man in his image and for his glory. 
And God commanded man to walk upright before God. God made a covenant with man. The covenant of works. Let me pause. Amen. God commanded the man, Adam, not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If the man ate from the tree, he would surely die. But if the man obeyed or worked toward his obedience, he would be rewarded with with eternal life or with partaking of the tree of life. He would earn a state of glory that he did not possess via his initial created state. He would earn a state of glory. This man, Adam, stood as a covenant head or representative for all of men. Adam's obedience would be, therefore, our obedience. And likewise, Adam's disobedience would be our disobedience. Satan seduced Adam's wife to disobey the command of God. And she, in turn, seduced her husband to disobey the command of God. Adam, who was created upright and yet created with the ability to sin or not to sin, to obey or disobey, freely chose to disobey the command of God. Therefore, Romans 5:12, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. How have all men sinned? All men have sinned through their representative head, through their covenant head, through their federal head, Adam. When Adam sinned against God, we all sinned against God. Because Adam stood as our covenant head, representative head, federal head. When he sinned, we all sinned. The Bible says in Romans 3.23, Paul have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Adam failed to attain a glory that was laid up for him and his posterity if he had obeyed. Chapter 6, paragraph 2 of our confession, our parents, by this sin, fell from their original righteousness and communion with God, and we in them whereby death came upon all, becoming dead in sin and wholly defiled in all the faculties and parts of soul and body. And so man has sinned. Man has fallen. Man has been corrupted by man's sin. He's also been separated from God. His sin has caused the righteous judgment of God to be upon him for his willful disobedience. But praise be to God. This is not the end of the story. In the midst of encroaching darkness, there is light. In the midst of man's sin and rebellion, God makes a promise of redemption and grace. He says in Genesis 3.15, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise the seed, shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. And from this point onward, there is a particular lens through which the scriptures must be viewed. There is a particular aim or target or goal that God is bringing to pass in the covenant of redemption and in the promised covenant of grace. The triune God is actively bringing to pass in time and space all that the triune God has purposed before time and space. And it begins in time and space here at the fall of man. That which the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit have covenanted to bring to pass in the Father sending the Son, the Son becoming incarnate, representing a people, being born under human liabilities, meaning being born to obey the law, under the law, perfectly obeying, sacrificially dying, gloriously rising, and royally reigning, begins here 
in time and space there at the garden temple, the garden of Eden and at the fall of man. Chapter seven of our pair of our confession, paragraph two, man, having brought himself under the curse of the law by his fall, it pleased the Lord to make a covenant of grace wherein he freely offers unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him that they might be saved and promising to give unto all those that are that are ordained unto eternal life, his Holy Spirit to make them willing and able to believe. God does this. God makes sinners willing and able to believe. Adam believed the promise of grace. Adam believed the promise of God. Adam believed that God would send salvation Adam believed God when God said salvation would come through a woman. A seed would rise from the woman and she, he shall destroy the works of Satan. Adam believed this. Adam believed God. And just like Abraham, who would come 2,000 years later, Adam believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. How do we know that Adam believed? Adam names his wife life. Adam who was in charge of naming all of creatures, names his wife Eve. Eve is to live or to breathe. And from this woman would come two sons, Cain and Abel. These two young men offered sacrifices unto the Lord. As it was commanded, Cain offered to the Lord that which God did not command. While Abel offered to God that which God was commanding or was acceptable to God. Cain sinned against God. And Cain sinned against his brother. And Cain sinned against his parents by brutally murdering his younger brother out of jealousy and rage. And thus, the seeds of the woman, the seeds of the serpent are being revealed. Cain is a seed of the serpent, while Abel is a seed of the woman. And we could read of this tragic story, and through the narrative of Cain and Abel, we could forget the theology of the promise of Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. God has promised to put enmity or war between two seeds. And only 18 verses later, we see the reality of that which God has foretold coming to pass. Eve has another son. One who replaces the godly line of Abel. His name is Seth. Scripture then gives us a bird's eye view or a tracing, a tracking, if you will, of these two seeds. The line of Cain. They are city builders who build for their own glory. They use might and violent force to achieve their goals. The line of Seth. They call upon the name of the Lord. Not forsaking or or forgetting the promise that one will come to bring rest to God's people. The sin of man becomes so great on the earth that, that the Lord declares in Genesis 6 and verse 5. Every intention, every intent and thoughts of the hearts of man was evil continually. And yet, in the midst of man's heart, man's desires, man's intentions, man's pursuits being only evil all the time, or in the midst of, once again, encroaching darkness, there is light. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Genesis 6 and verse 8. The Lord God called Noah out of darkness that was enveloping the entire earth, So that he might escape the coming judgment of God upon all flesh. God called Noah to build an ark. Noah believed God. And spent the next 100 years enduring opposition, persecution until the day when water burst forth from the grounds. And poured down from the heavens upon all of humanity. 
God brought his wrath upon all of humanity, all flesh. God reversed creation. God decreated the earth. The earth was once again what it was before God said, let there be light. And after a year and three months, the Lord God called Noah and his family from the ark and made a covenant with Noah and all of creation saying, I will establish my covenant with you and all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood. Neither shall be shall there be again a flood to destroy the earth. God gave a covenant of unilateral disposition. God gives common preservation to all flesh, regardless of faith or works. But remember, what was the purpose of the promise of common preservation? What's the purpose of it? Was the promise of common preservation a result of God regretting the manner in which he executed judgment? Did God say, gosh, you know, I was maybe a little bit too harsh on everybody. I won't do that again. No. Brothers and sisters, let us not think for one moment that God regrets executing judgment on the wicked. For his holiness demands it. God's holiness demands a righteous execution of judgment. There is no chain that, change that comes upon God. Amen. He is impassable. So then, what was the purpose of the common preservation that God has promised upon all flesh? Listen to this. It was a Christocentric promise. It was a Christ-centered, God-glorifying promise. What do I mean? Genesis 3.15 is not in the rearview mirror. It's the destination and goal that lies ahead. God promised to preserve humanity so that the promised skull-crushing seed of the woman might not be prevented from his appearance. Noah has three sons. And in those three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japhet, we are once again called to keep our eyes on the prize. Ham sins against his father. He is cursed. Shem and Japheth deal righteously with their father. and They are blessed. And once again, the tale of two kingdoms is laid bare before our eyes. It's not rebooted. It's not reestablished. God is not is not uh, putting his promise of Genesis 3.15 back in the rearview mirror and saying that, that that's back there. It's always before us. It's always before us. It's always in front of us. God has not put this end goal out of sight and out of mind. It's the goal. It's what we're stri- what God is, is striving and pushing all of creation, humanity, and history towards. We then are presented with a genealogy in chapter 10. The sons of Japheth, the sons of Ham, the sons of Shem, followed by what? Darkness. What's the darkness? Man is united for the purpose of glorifying Man, come let us, come let us, they say. Man has chosen not to expand and be fruitful upon the earth, but rather settle and deliberately disobey the command of God. Man seeks for himself a name. He seeks to uplift his own name. Rather rather than the name of God, he seeks to make a name for himself. Man unites to build a ziggurat. Remember what that is? A temple, a place of worship. It will be the epicenter of the the new city it's called babel the ambition of man is that their new structure will reach the very reach the very heights of heaven that it will be seen as far as the eye can see by every man brothers and sisters darkness has not been lifted from the earth though god has executed judgment over all of the earth darkness still is very much alive 
But my dear friend, may I, may I warn you that the Lord will not sit by idle while his creatures trample upon his commands. The Lord responded by confusing their language and thus scattering the peoples abroad all over the face of the world. Dear brothers and sisters, this is where we've been. And this helps us. This serves to help us better understand where we now are in Genesis chapter 11. Second point. Where we have been. Where we are. Number two, where we are. This is concerning verses 10 through 31. I'm not going to read those again. As we come to the remaining verses of the 11th chapter of the book of Genesis, we must not forget Babel. For Babel is purposely, listen to this, it's purposely positioned between the, the, the exit of Noah and the introduction of Abraham. It's nestled just between these two great figures of faith in the Old Testament, right between Noah, who has just exited the scene, and right before Abraham, who was just about to enter the scene. And how are we introduced to Abraham? The world has been judged by God for their wicked scheme to exalt themselves. The language of man has been confused as they have been scattered throughout the face of the earth. But ask this question. Here it is. What about the promise? Remember, we, we, we are constantly being brought back to the promise or the promise is constantly being brought back to our, our, our focus and view. We should never lose sight of it. So we should ask ourselves, what about the seed? What about the promise? Has the promise of sending a deliverer, the skull crushing seed of the woman, has that promise been lost? Has the purpose and promises of God, have they been abandoned? No. That should be an easy question, right? No, of course not. For God declares in Isaiah 55, 11, for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eaters, so will my word, which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. God has not forgotten his promise and evidence of the fact that we are once again, being refocused. We are being refocused. God is not being refocused. We are being refocused. And let me just, isn't it easy to lose focus? Isn't it easy to lose track of Genesis 3.15 when you are reading of two brothers killing, or a brother killing another brother? Or a, a great flood? Or, or what we see in the Tower of Babel? We could easily lose sight of Genesis 3.15. But God is bringing us back to 3.15. Now, how is he doing that? Interestingly enough, through a genealogy. How in the world is God bringing us, us back to, to focusing on Genesis 3.15 through a genealogy? What is the first verse of Genesis? Or what's the, the first verse of Genesis? What does Genesis chapter 11 verse 10 say? Is what I'm trying to say. These are the records of the generation of who? Of Shem. Is that random? No. It's obviously intentional. These are the records of the generation of Shem. And brothers and sisters, let those words not be words of mystery, but let those words be words of hope. Amidst the judgment of God, 
on all of humanity for, for forsaking his commands. Amidst the, the scattering of nations and the confusing of languages, God has not forgotten his promise. And verse 10 is the great reminder that the promise and purpose of God will be accomplished here. In verse 10 is great encouragement for our souls. How? Because verse 10 begins with blessed Shem. Blessed Shem. Shem, whose name means blessed by Yahweh. Shem, who was blessed by his father Noah after he, along with his brother Japheth, dealt righteously with their brother. And Shem, who was revealed as being the one through whom the line, through which the skull-crushing seed of the woman would be born. Brothers and sisters, we must see that in light of the judgment at Babel, Babel has just happened, darkness has just happened. Then all of a sudden, Scripture says, and here is Shem. And here is Shem. Superintended by God for our encouragement that all has not been lost. Man's language has been confused. Man has been scattered throughout the face of the earth. Man is seeking to exalt himself. But God has preserved for himself a remnant. Here is Shem. Here is Shem. The righteous line of the skull-crushing seed of the woman has been preserved. And God will bring salvation to his people. God will bring salvation to his people. As the names of the sons of Shem are listed, there are at least two things that we notice here. First, the line of the righteous and people in general seem to be having children much earlier in life. Verse 12, Arphaxad lived 35 years and became the father of Shelah. Verse 14, Shelah lived 30 years and became the father of Eber. Verse 16, Eber lived 34 years and became the father of Peleg. And so on. The second thing that we uh, note, that is worth noting at least, is unlike the genealogy in chapter 5, this genealogy is not focused on death. For there is no refrain of death at the end of each verse in chapter 5. And then he died. And then he died. And so on and so on. Rather, the refrain here in chapter 11 is, and he had other sons and daughters. The focus of chapter 5 is death. Why? Because death was on its way. There was going to be a great judgment upon all of the earth. The focus here is on life and on generations. For generations will be, or nations will be promised soon in chapter 12 and 15 and 17 and so on. By the time that we reach and arrive to verse 26, we are caused by God to have a more narrow view of the righteous line. We have seen nations broadly. But now we are getting a more narrowed, focused view of who God has chosen to carry on the promise and to further his purposes. It's not the purpose of God to, to name every son and daughter of the line of Seth. That's not the point. We could ask questions like, well, whatever happened to Seth? Where did he live? What did he eat? So on and so forth. Whatever happened to our fact said, we could ask those intriguing questions, but they are not the focus of scripture. Do you understand that? Uh, we should never go to the scripture and say, well, what about dinosaurs? Scripture is not intending to answer all of your interesting questions. And some of them are not so interesting, right? Second Peter one, three, seeing this, that his divine power has granted everything pertaining to life and godliness. 
that through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. God is not focused on all of our intriguing and maybe not so intriguing questions. God is focused on that which points to Christ and that which provides life and godliness. That's the goal of scripture. And yet, at the same time, these names are listed. We are presented with a problem. The enemy of our soul has not ceased his war against the righteous. The enemy of our souls has not ceased his opposition of God's plan. How do we know that? For when we arrive at verse 26, we are presented with a man named Terah. He is the father of three sons. Pause. Have you seen that before? A father of three sons. Have we seen this pattern before? Of course we have. Who had three sons? Adam had three sons. Noah had three sons. And now Terah has three sons. Adam, or Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Abram is mentioned first. Is he the oldest? No, he's the most important. Just as we have seen in the past, right? Abram is the most important. This son is mentioned first because he is greatest of importance. In this pattern of three sons, each time there is one chosen, two who are not, usually. And through the one, will come the righteous. In this case, it is Abram. But we're not there yet. There's something that has gone terribly wrong with a line, the righteous line of Seth. The line has been mentioned by God purposely. The, the, the righteous line of Shem is to be the, the blessed line. But there has been a great apostasy that has happened in that righteous line of Shem. There has been a turning from the faith that has taken place. For when we meet Terah, Listen to this. And his family, meaning including Abram, they are not worshiping the one true God, but they are worshiping and serving other gods. When we, when Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem, he recounted Israel's history and said concerning Terah and Abram, Joshua 24, verse 2, don't need to turn there, but listen. From ancient times, your fathers lived beyond the river. Namely, he says, I'm speaking specifically of Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nahor, they served other gods. This is also stated by Stephen in the book of Acts. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Shem is blessed by Yahweh. Shem's son Eber, his name is synonymous with faithfulness. But Terah, Abram, and possibly Abram's grandfather, served and worshipped other gods. Somewhere... In the family line, there has been one who has departed from the faith of their fathers. And their progeny, their children, have followed in their idolatry. Let me ask you, in passing, will you be the one to carry on the gospel in your family and pass it on to your children? Or will it end with you? We see in their descendants, or we see their descendants, but we don't see their descendants' stories. We don't see what drove them away from the one true God. We see their names, but not their stories. We know that the world was in rebellion against God. Terah lived in two cities that we know of, Ur of the Chaldeans and Haran. And listen to this. Only these two cities were known for their dedication to the moon god sin. 
Only these two cities were known for their worship and devotion to the moon god, Sin. Sin is where we get the name Sinai, Mount Sinai, where Israel would soon wander years after years. Ur of the Chaldeans, Ur, had a temple called House of Great Light, and it was dedicated to the moon god. There was another one also called House of Great Joy, and it was dedicated to the worship of moon god. Terah's travels correspond to Middle Eastern moon god worship. In fact, there is an old rabbinical teaching that Terah was a priest for the pagan god of the moon of sin. Terah was completely. The point is this. Terah is completely committed to the worship of the false moon god. And it is safe to say that not only Terah is committed to the false worship of the moon, but that Abram is also committed to worshiping the moon that abram and his family were also committed to worshiping this false god matter of fact sarai and milka the names that we see here their names are both related to pagan gods are both related to the worship of pagan gods their names are synonymous with those worships why is this important because this is where we are This is the background of the man whom the scriptures testify is the father of the nation of Israel and the example of true faith. This is where we are. This is who Abram is. Before we see all of the great things of Abram, this is where we are. Darkness is where we are. And yet, this moon God-worshipping pagan How can the skull-crushing seed of the woman come from this moon god-worshipping pagan? We learn in verse 28 that somehow Terah's son, Haran, he dies in the presence of Ur, somehow, in Ur of the Chaldeans. Abram marries his half-sister Sarai, which Scripture later forbids in God's law, while Nahor marries Milcah. Verse 31 Terah took his son Abram, took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran, his grandson, <clears throat> and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son's his son Abram's wife, and they went out together from Ur the Chaldeans in order to enter the land of Canaan. As they went as far, and they went as far as Haran and settled there. The days of Terah were two hundred and five years, and Terah died in Haran. This seems to be where we are. With one exception. Number three, in closing. Where we are going. Where we've been, where we are, and where we are going. Uh, Where are we going? That might have been the the very question that Terah's family asked as they traveled from Ur of the Chaldeans. But there is darkness. The line through which the righteous will come is worshiping other gods. They are a moon-worshiping pagan family that is dealing with the loss of a family member, Haran. And now they are traveling to a land that is not their own. We learn in the book of Acts that it was Abram who was called out of Ur, the Chaldeans, to a land that God would show him. We see this also in Genesis chapter 12. So it is very possible that when Terah is giving Abram, it is possible that Terah is giving Abram his blessing. As he travels with Abram to a place that God is showing Abram. 
Not so much that Torah is leading them, but that Torah is following, but has given the blessing to Abram as he goes where God is leading him. But there is a verse that I have purposely skipped over. And maybe you have mentioned, maybe you noticed it. It can be easily overlooked. Perhaps unless you are a woman who happens to be dealing with the same condition that Sarai was dealing with. Verse 30. Sarai was barren. She had no child. Did you see that? Sarai was barren. She had no child. This 30th verse will be the central theme for all that lies before us over the next 13 chapters. This one little seemingly insignificant verse will be the central theme of all that lies before us over the next 13 chapters. This 30th verse, it sets the plot for the the drama that is going to unfold over the next 13 chapters. And this is where we are going. God will make Abraham great. We shall see that God will make a covenant with a covenant promise of both nations and land to Abram. We shall see that from him shall come the seed through whom all the nations will be blessed. We shall see that he will be blessed by Melchizedek before all these things, though. For all of these blessings in the life of Abram. The very first thing that we learn is that his dear wife Sarai is barren. Why? Scripture is doing something intentional. It may seem like a passing statement, but think about verse 30. The barrenness of Sarai in light of all that we have read thus far in the scriptures about this, about about fruitfulness. Beginning in Genesis 128, God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. And from this moment on, all that we see is this person begat that person and that person begat this person. All that we see from that point on is fruitfulness. We only have examples of multiplications of families. And then all of a sudden there is a, there is a, a sudden and extreme stop. There is a sudden and extreme halt. Sarai was barren. She had no child. It is possible, very possible, that there were other women who were barren prior to Genesis chapter 11 and verse 30. But this is the first mention of barrenness thus far with the scriptures and the first mention of barrenness that is so closely related to the line through whom the skull-crushing seed of the woman would come. There was a great problem. This is the line through which the, the Messiah would come. But there was a problem. This woman is unable to have children. It would appear that all have been blessed thus far. All except for Sarai. It would appear that this is an apparent dead end. But listen to this. This apparent dead end has been chosen and ordained by God. It is in this apparent dead end. A barrenness that God has chosen to do his work. It is in this apparent fruitlessness that God will give later laughter. It is to a moon-worshipping pagan family, unable to have children, 
that God will bring the salvation to the nations. We have read of the creation of all things, the fall of humanity, worldwide flood, scattering of nations, the history of the nations. And now scripture will focus not on universal history, but on the history of one particular family that have been chosen to become a holy nation through this family, through this barren woman, God will shape the nations. God is pivoting all of the nations that we will see this point, all, uh, this point forward and all the nations that we saw in chapter 10. He is pivoting all of the nations. Listen to this. On the womb of this barren woman. And not just any kind of woman. An old woman. A woman past the age of childbearing. There is a seed yet to be born. And his line will continue through the barren woman past the age of childbearing. This is the work of God. This is the plan and purpose of God. God will use the unfortunate and even painful and even embarrassing details of this woman's life to further his purposes in the earth and ultimately bring forth the Savior of the world. God has not forsaken Sarai in her weakness, but God is using her weakness to draw him closer to her or draw her closer to him. She will learn what the Apostle Paul learned and what we must all learn, that God's strength is made perfect in weakness. What makes anything worthwhile in the barrenness of Sarai is God, God's nearness to her in the midst of barrenness. In the midst of her weakness, she is altogether, listen to this, and she is altogether unaware of his nearness. She is worshiping other gods. Her name is synonymous with a pagan god. She is unable to have children, and yet what she is completely unaware of is that in the midst of all of these things that are true about where she is, that God's nearness to her is closer than she realizes. The one true God. She is altogether unaware of the purposes of God in her empty womb. It's not great that she's barren. It's not great that any woman is barren. There is nothing noble about her barrenness. But for her and for every other, her problem is a part of God's great and grand purpose. Her problem is a part of God's great and grand purpose. What God will do through her empty womb has yet to be discovered. But the details have been written by God. She does not yet know the details. She does not know the end. But they have been ordered and detailed by God. And like us all, we fail to understand the details of our pain until the very end. It doesn't all make sense until the very end. When it's all said and done, when we can look back and see, that's when things begin to make sense. And those details that we can't understand, the details that she could not see, that she could not understand, they belong to the Lord. 
They are the things that, as the psalmist said in Psalm 139, they are too wonderful to me. They are too high for me. We cannot attain it. They are beyond our understanding. Why God would do certain things that he does is beyond our comprehension until it's all over. And sometimes not even until we reach him in glory. Dear ones, if Sarai had not been barren, would God had later walked through her tent? If Sarai had not been barren, would God had later dined in her camp? If Sarai had not been barren, would God's promise to her to give her a child, would it had not later made her laugh? If Sarai had not been barren, then would her joy at seeing the embodiment of laughter, Isaac, the promised child, would it not be truly fulfilled? Her problem is part and parcel of her purpose. The purpose that God has ordained for her life. And know this. God's world is not random. In thy book, all thy members were written. Our lives are in his book. What we read in verse 30. And the trials and tribulations of childlessness that that Abraham and Sarai and Sarah would pass over the next 20 years was no accident they were ordered and ordained by god these trials they were ordered and ordained by god these details and might i encourage you with three brief points of contemplation as we close god determines the details of this plot this is his story from generations of nations to the barrenness of wombs God has ordered them all. In the first 11 chapters, we have seen that in spite of man's actions, God is forwarding his purposes and his promises. And they are coming closer and closer to fulfillment. God will send a seed. History marches to the plan of God. God orders history and history keeps in stride with God's plans. Our lives are not out of control. God superintends our lives. Therefore, we must not fret. We must not fear. We must not be dismayed. For we see God's fingerprints all over the details of our lives. Secondly, God determines our purposes. Salvation changes our purposes. We were in pursuit of glorifying ourselves. And then God brought us out of darkness and into his light. And now our pursuit is to glorify God. And listen, out of us, I said this to our, our guys that we were meeting with at the mission this past week. Where were you when God called you? What were you in pursuit of when God called you out of darkness and into his light? What were you striving towards? Were any of us striving towards any good? No, there was something in us that said, I, I, I must strive for something else other than what I'm striving for now. Because what I'm striving for is killing me. It was not you who made the decision, though. It was God who purposely drew and pulled you out of darkness. And some of us, most of us, kicking and screaming. But he is not called the strongest. Were you the strongest? He is not called the the wisest. Were you the wisest? I said... He's dragged us kicking and screaming. I say that because of this. 
because none of us want God by nature. He changes our hearts. He changes the disposition of our hearts and minds so that we do want him. He's not chosen the most obvious candidates according to man's wisdom. God has chosen an old moon-worshipping pagan and his old moon-worshipping wife who was barren. And through them, he will fulfill his purposes in this earth to bring forth a seed that will destroy the works of the enemy. Out of all the earth, God chooses the weak. He chooses the lowly to further his eternal purposes. And finally, God determines our path and promises his children that his grace will be sufficient for us in times of weakness. God starts the story of Abram by introducing Abram in weakness, by introducing Abram with all of his problems, with all of his sins. This is how we are introduced to Abram. He's not a warrior. He's not a great man of faith yet. He's an old man worshiping the moon with a half-sister as his wife who is unable to have any children. God chooses his people in their weakness, not in their strength. If God chooses, if God has chosen a particular path for you to walk in, let us not complain, but let us ask God to help Help us glorify him in that path that he has chosen for our lives. Do you believe that all things work together for the good? Then praise God for the path that he has placed you on. And it is through this man and this woman that God will bring forth the seed. Listen, not to destroy barrenness. Not so that if you believe in Christ, now you'll have babies. Not so that if you believe in Christ or if you believe in this seed, you'll be rich like Abraham. Not so that if you believe in in Christ, that you will have many, many uh, uh, descendants and properties and so on and so forth like Abraham. But so that through this seed that would come through Abraham, you might have life. That you might be rescued from your sin. The sin that has plagued every man since the fall of Genesis chapter 3. But there was a promise coming. The promise of Genesis 3.15 that is still yet before the people of the Old Testament. And a promise that we now look back on that has been fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. Coming to live what we could not live, to die what we should have died, and to rise for our justification. He is that seed of the woman that has crushed the head of the enemy. And now... All of scripture is still looking forward. All of history and humanity is still looking forward to the coming of that one. The coming of that one who will rule and reign for all eternity and bring many sons to glory. And to God be the glory. Don't overlook genealogies. Take your time and see what God is superintending for his people to know and understand about his purposes and his promises. Even in the things that seem most difficult. Let us pray.